Those of you that may not know, I am Pastor Nathan, and today we are going to be looking at the first of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, the letter to the church of Ephesus. And we are going to be taking communion today, so hopefully you guys got communion cups as you came in. Did you guys get those? No, some of you did. Okay, we're going to have some of our elders in the foyer come down with the communion trays to get you guys communion cups uh, while we're doing our intro here. But if you're online at home, make sure you go get some of your communion emblems ready, and we'll be taking communion together at the end of service. But I wanted to open up today with a story, a story that may um, be familiar to some of you, completely unfamiliar to others. But the story goes like this. A husband and a wife got into an argument. And the wife had repeatedly asked her husband if he would take out the trash, which he repeatedly failed to do. After one more rightfully frustrated comment from his wife, he finally took the trash out and then came back in, obviously annoyed. And he said, there, I did the deed. Are you happy now? And she said, no, I am not happy, leading to a very thoroughly confused husband. Why not? I did the thing you wanted me to do. You've been pestering me about it for months. I finally took out the trash. Isn't that what you wanted me to do? And she says, I want you to want to take out the trash. (laughs) Who wants to take out the trash, the husband says. And such props up the entire marital support industry with counseling, books, and seminars. Now, if you have ever found yourself in a, in a scenario such as these, if you need a communion cup, please raise your hand, and we're going to have our elders come down. Hold them up, okay? We're just going to, like, praise Jesus right now. Hold that hand up while we're doing the intro, okay? And then we'll get the communion cups to you. <laughs> but if you've ever been in such a scenario that uh, we just uh, shared in that story, you might be familiar with the difference between doing something for someone or having something done for you out of duty an obligation versus having something done for you or doing something for somebody purely out of love and that being your primary motivation. Or to put it in context of the story, begrudgingly taking out the trash versus gladly taking out the trash. Now in the world of new relationships, you'll often notice that new relationships will start out with vigor and intentionality and enthusiasm and there's an excitement, right? People in new relationships will often go out of their way to do things they might not normally do before. They've gotten uh, some new clothes. Maybe they'll get a new haircut or wash their car. Some of us, when you get into a new relationship, that is the time when you clean out the months and months of fast food bags that have piled up in the backseat of your car, right? It's time to get the car clean. You go out of your way to be in regular contact with that person. You, you'll go out of your way to bring them Starbucks. You'll, you'll even start listening to the music they like. You just want to be connected. And as the love in that relationship grows, all of those activities are centered around a desire to make that other person happy, to put a smile on their face, just to be connected to them. Now, with newlywed couples, they, they call it the honeymoon phase, as you may have heard that phrase before. Now, unfortunately, what can happen over time, not that it should, but what can happen over time is what you once did purely out of love and purely out of desire to make them happy can turn into doing things out of duty or doing things because you feel like you have to or doing things because you just don't want to be bothered or get in trouble for not doing it. And there's a very stark difference between the two. 
Now this can happen in our relationship with Jesus and is the issue that he is dealing with in this first letter to the church in Ephesus. Now, not that doing what Jesus requires just because he says so is wrong, right? I mean, he is king, he is Lord, but when our primary motivation for doing, for living for him, for obeying him and doing what he calls us to do, when our primary motivation is not love for him, we find ourselves in danger, as the church in Ephesus did. And because Revelation is a prophetic address, prophetic address to the churches, what is revealed here is something that every church, every individual Christian can experience. And Jesus, in his great love and mercy and compassion, tells us what to do in this letter, if and when we find that our love for Jesus is growing cold and is no longer our primary motivation for serving and living for him. That's what we're gonna be looking at today. But we're gonna start today specifically by expressing our adoration to him in worship. To just praise his name, to worship him because he is almighty, he is glorious, he is worthy of our praise. And so I think that is just a wonderful way to set the stage here as we look at this letter today, to just start with saying, Jesus, we love you so much. So join me in prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you, God, for what you've done. Lord, today we are gathered here as the body of Christ to hear from you, Lord, as we go verse by verse through your word, God, we ask that you would speak to us today. Lord, that you would reveal the good areas and the bad areas in our lives just as you do in every single one of these letters to these churches, Lord. That you would point out the things of concern, Lord, that you have against us that we may repent of these things, that we may correct these things just as we celebrate the areas that you would look and say, hey, you're doing this well. But God, we all know that in the life as a Christian, Lord, sometimes we could get caught up in doing things because it's routine. It becomes the mundane, just what we do because, Lord, and we lose that vibrant love, that fervency to just do it because we love you so much. And God, there's an effect when that happens in our lives. It greatly affects our witness as we're gonna see today, Lord. And so God, we ask today you would speak into each one of our hearts. Lord, that you would challenge us and encourage us. Lord, if we need to be rebuked, we welcome that. Because, Lord, we want you to do your work in our lives that we would be more like you in this world. Lord, we love you so much. We thank you for everything. We worship you now, God. Be praised. Be glorified. Be blessed. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are in Revelation chapter 2. And I want to start by reading aloud the words of this prophecy. Revelation 2, verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardship for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. 
Father, may we have ears to hear today. Speak to us, Lord. We want to be people who listen and hear your voice. And so we welcome what it is you have to say to us today, Lord. Let us hear it. Let us apply it. Let us be people who serve you out of love for you and nothing else. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, Ephesus was a difficult place to be a Christian at the time. It was a major, major Roman city. Um, It was a capital of its province. To kind of give you guys an idea of how major this city was, it was like a New York of its time or a Los Angeles of its time. It was a very, very rich city, very prominent Um, city. It was a port town, so they had just goods coming from all over the place. There was lots of trade, and it was actually known for having a very, very huge agora, which is that Greek term for marketplace, which you see on the screen is actually the ruins that are there today. You can visit of what the agora was, and you see that whole rectangle area there was this giant marketplace, which was really the center of the social life there in Ephesus. Because it was such a prominent port town and trade town, it was very cosmopolitan. You had Jews, you had Greeks, you had people from all over the place that lived in this city. And thus, it was also a major center of pagan worship. Ephesus sported 14 temples to various pagan gods, but none of them was as grand as the Temple of of Diana or known as the Temple of Artemis. Diana was the Roman version of the Greek god Artemis. And so this is one of the um, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world is absolutely gigantic. To give you an idea of the size of this temple, if you went from the sidewalk behind us on Flower Street all the way to the um, sheriff's department, that's how long this temple was. From the sidewalk here on the side of us all the way across the street to the other buildings, that's how wide this temple was. It was absolutely enormous. And so Diana, or this goddess Artemis, was considered the goddess of fertility and life. And Ephesus was the headquarters of her worship. Now the worship of Diana pervaded every aspect of life in Ephesus. It was everywhere, it was connected to everything. As a matter of fact, in that temple was the central bank of Ephesus. So if you wanted to bank your money, if you wanted to store your money into a savings account, you had to go to the temple of Diana to do so and walk through all the worship and pagan stuff that took place there. Because she was considered the goddess of life and fertility, her temple was filled with hundreds and hundreds of temple prostitutes, both male and female, because all of that sexually immoral activity was a part of the worship of Diana. Now, in addition to that, Ephesus was considered a neo-koros. That is a word that means that uh, uh, references a city that actually hosted a temple to one of the Roman emperors. It was a very, very rare honor to be considered a neocoros. It was a very rare honor to host even a single temple to a Roman emperor, but Ephesus sported two. One to Caesar Augustus, and if you remember, he was back during the time of the birth of Jesus where the aggressive push to start worshiping the Roman emperors as deities was introduced, and so they had a temple to Caesar Augustus there and a temple to the emperor Domitian, who was the most recent emperor of the time. 
Now Domitian was an especially brutal emperor when it came to the persecution of Christians, and his reign was known to be one where he aggressively fought to make sure that every citizen in the empire worshiped the emperor. And so this was where they were to call them Lord, and they were to reference them as master and savior and these types of things. And so there was this aggressive push. In the Roman Empire at that time, under Domitian, there was a yearly festival that took place where every Roman citizen was required to go out into a public place, look at the big statue of the emperor at his temple, and declare that Caesar is Lord. And to make it even more difficult to even go into that agora and that marketplace, to even go into the place where you can buy and sell, where you can get the goods you needed to live, outside the agora at the entrance was a big incense burner, and it was required for every person to enter the agora. You had to take a pinch of incense and drop it in the burner as a sign of loyalty to the emperor. You can imagine it was difficult to be a Christian in such a place. It was difficult couldn't go shopping unless you declared your loyalty to the emperor. Got in trouble if you didn't go out once a year and say Caesar is Lord. To even go to the bank, you had to walk through just sexual immorality taking place just out in the open in that temple just to go put your money in the bank and to get your money out. And then even if you did that, the temple kept the interest. Now, Christianity was introduced to Ephesus by the Apostle Paul in AD, uh, 52 AD. You can read about this in Acts chapter 18 during his second missionary trip. He went there, he started speaking in the synagogues, introduced Christianity, and then he left and he came back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey um, in the years 54 to 55 AD, and that was when he planted the church in Ephesus and nurtured it. Now, there might have been some, some uh, beginnings of that church from his second trip, but, but by this point, the church was established and he nurtured it and stayed there for three years in Ephesus preaching and teaching. And you can read about this in Acts chapter 19. Now during this time, we find that miracles were performed, demons were cast out. Even those that were practicing magic, it says in one story, they burned all of their books. You see, one of those 14 temples in Ephesus was to a particular god of divination and fortune-telling. And so these people, um, many believe, and I believe they were, they were demon-possessed because they would, people would go there and pay money to get uh, divinations. Can you tell me the future? Can you tell me the lottery number, right? Can you tell me this and that? You know, can you tell me about this person and that? And so there was this demonic activity everywhere. There was this, this magic being done. And, but as the church grew, People were like, Jesus is real. None of this other stuff is real. People were being delivered and set free, and so the church became a vibrant, very bold um, institution there, very powerful in its witness and on fire with its devotion for Jesus. I mean, even by the time this letter is written, 50 years or so after the founding of the church there in Ephesus, um, they're still being uh, told they're doing good things, but there was an erosion that had been taking place. And it's an erosion that could happen to every single believer, every single church. It's a cooling of the fire in their hearts. What was happening here 50 years later after the founding of this church, it started so powerful and so vibrant and so full of love for Jesus and just wanting to see Jesus in every aspect of life is that they were still doing the same stuff, but the passion behind it was gone. The reason, the motivation behind it was gone. And so we read in Revelation 2.1, it's to this church, in this environment that Jesus speaks and John records. He said, write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, 
Thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now each one of these letters, Jesus pulls from his vision in chapter one in reference to this particular church. And I think that part of the vision ties to a very specific aspect of what he's going to challenge that church on or call them out on. And so if you remember from chapter one, the stars, the seven stars represented the messengers of each church. A word that is, reads as angel in our English Bible here, but it's a Greek word that simply means messenger. So it could be an angel over the church or it could be referring to the 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 pastor or the elder, right, the messenger, the person who's called to minister to that flock. Um, it could go either way, but it's referring to the messengers there, those seven stars. And then those lampstands, it told us in chapter one, just represent the churches themselves. And then again, when it says he has the seven stars in his right hand and Jesus is walking among the lampstands, it's this picture that Jesus is in control of his church, that he's in his church, he's among his church, holding those messengers in his hand. He's like, I have control of you. I'm, I'm here, I'm not just absent from what is going on, I'm among you. And so the opening exhortation in this letter, I believe, is look, the one in charge, the one who's in control of all things and all circumstances, He is the one who addresses you. He is the one who addresses you, the one true God, almighty above all false pagan gods and emperors who claim to be. And so in verse two, he says, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance, and that you cannot tolerate evil people. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be liars. I know that you have persevered and endured hardships for the sake of my name, and you have not grown weary. You know, a good way to deliver bad news is to start with good news. That's just a general leadership principle. If you're uh, in management of some kind and you have to deal with uh, somebody that you're a supervisor over and you have to deliver bad news, a good way to deliver that is to start with the good news. And this is what Jesus does here. You know, correction always preceded by praise. And so he starts out with this letter and he says, I know your works. I know your works. That word know there means to know with absolute clarity. Basically what he's saying is, look, I know everything about you. I know everything about what you're doing. And I know everything about why you're doing it. I know your works with absolute clarity. Jesus is the founder of the church. Jesus is the senior pastor of every church. He is the leader of his people, and he knows about every single one of us intimately. He knows who's here today. He knows who's not here today. He knows why you're here today. He knows why you might not be here today. He knows what we do our deeds, our works, and he knows what we don't do. But I think more importantly, he knows why. He knows the why behind everything because he sees everything. He sees our heart. He sees our motivation. Now, what he notices, I think, is very interesting are not superficial things as he's addressing the church here, right? He doesn't say, I, Jesus, the one in control, notice some things about you. Your carpet is worn out not in the list. He doesn't even say, look, I noticed that person who clapped off time. I have this against you. Your screen is glitchy. That's not what he gets into here, right? The things that are important to Jesus are all rooted in matters of the heart. 
the heart, what's inside of us. And so he commends them, he opens up with commending them, starting with the good news, and then he confronts them, and then he gives them some commands. So what does he commend them for? Let's walk through it. He opens there with, I know your works and your labor. That word labor there means to effort to the point of fatigue or exhaustion. Labor, it means hard work. It means, look, I know you're working hard for me. I know you're working hard for me. He's commending them for that. You guys are working hard. You're busy. You're about my work. You're about the work of the church. You're about the work of the kingdom. This idea here is that as a church, there in Ephesus, in that place, with all of that pagan stuff going on, I recognize that you guys are busy about my work. You guys come together to get the work of the church done. You're not a lazy church. You're not just letting others do it. You're not saying, oh, that's not my responsibility. You're plugged in. You're involved. Ephesus was not a church of spectators. It was a church of people who showed up, not just a place of people who never served. Instead, they were involved as a church. They were committed. They were participatory as a church, and not just inward, but they were participatory in the outreach of the church as well, getting the word out to the community. He says, I know your endurance. That word endurance means a steadfastness or a fortitude. It's the idea of being unwavering in a belief. So their endurance, when he's saying, I know your endurance, it's like, look, you haven't wavered in your beliefs. You haven't wavered in the core doctrines of what you believe and what you're all about. So so I'm commending that. He says, I know that you cannot tolerate evil people. That word tolerate there means to bear something up or to support something burdensome. Think of the idea of a donkey that's like loaded with like just pounds and pounds of stuff and it's this heavy burden, but he's bearing it up, right? He's, he's, he's allowing that burden to be carried in that sense. He's supporting it. But he's saying, look, you cannot tolerate evil people. He's commending them. He's saying, you didn't support. You didn't bear up You don't tolerate the evil immorality that is happening around you. And the idea of there that bearing up includes the ideas of doing something passively or intentionally. So he's saying, look, you're you're not a church that that just sits back and, well, I'm not going to say nothing. I'm not going to do nothing about the immorality. We're just going to hide in our walls. He goes, no, you don't do that. I'm commending you. You don't tolerate evil people. You, you, You speak out against evil when it needs to be spoken out against. Now, I do want to note here That what Jesus is not commending here is tolerance, but intolerance for evil and immorality. We live in this world today that says, hey, everybody should tolerate everything, except if you're a Christian, but but, but everybody should tolerate everything, every lifestyle, every thought, every decision, every immorality, every debauchery, every wickedness. What Jesus is commending this church here is not for their tolerance, but their intolerance of evil and immorality. And it's interesting, because you go back to the New Testament and you see the church of Corinth tolerated immorality in their midst. They got rebuked for it. You read the, the letter to the Galatians, they tolerated legalism in their midst, and they got rebuked for it. You guys, there's nothing Christ-like about being politically correct at the expense of the gospel and God's truth. Nothing Christ-like about that. Sure, we're not to be mean and unkind and ungracious in our defense of truth, but we're called to be people who, like Paul, was able to say, look, I want to preach the love of Christ at the same time of standing firm for the truth of Jesus. And they're commended for this. 
They're also commended for testing those who claim to be apostles. You know, at the time of this church, and we kind of dealt with this as we went through 1 John, that itinerant preachers were a big problem. People who would travel from church to church and show up and knock on the door and go, hi, I come in the name of the Lord. Uh, Can you house me and clothe me and feed me and give me money? And it was such a bad problem at the time that there was a special book written that was circulated amongst the churches. It's not scripture, but it was a manual for the churches on how to deal with these these apostles and these prophets. They would claim to be apostles and claim to be prophets. How do you deal with them? And in this manual, it said, look, if they show up, you welcome them, but they can only stay for one, maybe two days. But if they stay for three days, they're false. Kick them out, right? Just pretty cut and dry. This is how you know they're from the Lord. They don't stay for three days. Okay. Some of us, you're like, oh, wow. I have a family member that maybe isn't from the Lord because they've been here months, right? <laughs> um, but, but different situation, okay, different situation. Um, but Ephesus, I mean, Ephesus, think about it. From the very beginning of Ephesus, it was a church planted by Paul. And as you read through the letters of the New Testament, we see that this particular church had so much great teaching, right? Paul taught there. Timothy did ministry there. Apollos did ministry there. And then we know John the Apostle was there exiled to Patmos and then ends up back in Ephesus. So they had tons of great teaching and they were really good at spotting false apostles and their false doctrine. In fact, in Acts chapter 20, as Paul was leaving the shores of Ephesus, he met with the leaders there, and he tells the leaders, look guys, I've spent three years ministering among you all, teaching you the whole counsel of God. But I'm telling you now that when I leave, savage wolves are gonna come in among you, and they're gonna come from outside, and they're gonna come from inside trying to destroy the flock. And guess what? Ephesus was ready. They were ready for that. They knew how to spot, spot the false apostles. They knew how to, to discern that they were liars. And you know, even at the end of the first century here, they're still known. They're being commended for their doctrinal purity, their dogmatic stance to know this is what truth is, and this is what is true, and this is what is false. And so they were people who were discerning and, and able to discover and identify false teachers and false teaching, and they're commended for it. Additionally, they're commended for persevering and enduring hardship. And that word hardship means persecution. But it was hardship that came because of their um, faith. It says, for the sake of my name, that they endured hardship simply for naming the name of Jesus, saying we, we believe in Jesus, right? 14 temples, one of the seven wonders of the world, you have to worship the emperor. And it's likely that, that, that these Christians were people who had went into the marketplace and didn't drop the pinch of incense, and then when they said, everybody come out of your house and say Caesar is Lord, they may have come out of their house but didn't say anything. They wouldn't bow, they wouldn't bow in worship, and so their lives were incredibly difficult because they said, no, we are gonna stand for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they're commended for this. It says they didn't grow weary. Now this, 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 endure, or this persecution that happened, it, it, was, it had been there the whole time. You go back to Acts chapter 19, you read the story about Paul as he's there ministering and planning the church. We have the story about the huge riot. You guys remember that, right? The worship of Diana was, a, was not only just a, a, a false religion, but it was also an industry because there was people there who would make these statues to Diana and it was this weird statue that was like multi-breasted and it was just this weird looking thing, but they would sell these statues to people and people would take them home and put them on their shelves and worship Diana, right? Well, as the church started growing and people started getting saved, the sales of those statues started to decline and there was a man named Demetrius who got upset and roused all the people up in the town 
town and they drug Paul and they were gonna get them out and they drug them all the way to the amphitheater. What's really cool is you could see that amphitheater today. It's still there in Ephesus. That is where that riot took place. Where the people for two hours chanted that, that um, um, Ephesus worships Artemis. I forget the exact phrase, but for two hours. They're like, the God of Ephesus is Diana, the God of, you know, and then a, uh, a public administrator had to come in and be like, okay, calm down, people. Look, we have courts for this type of thing. Go home, <laughs> right? But it's interesting that, 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 that this, you could see evidence in the places where this stuff happened. But they didn't grow weary. They didn't grow weary. That word weary means emotionally fatigued and discouraged. It means I want to give up. I want to quit. I'm tired of standing for Jesus with this persecution around me all the time. I'm tired, and, 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 and it would have been easy to do so, but Jesus is saying here to them, look, good job. Good job, Ephesus. You're busy working hard for my name. You're unwavering in your witness in the midst of, of, of the headquarters of a huge religion and 14 other temples and emperor worship. You're unwavering in your witness. You don't tolerate sin. You don't turn a blind eye to sin. You don't just be like, oh, well, and just kind of, you know, be- no, you don't tolerate evil people. You defend doctrine. You defend the truth of God's word. You test those who show up and claim to be apostles and preachers. You test those who teach the word and preach it. You're doctrinally sound. You're discerning, right? Your attitude is strong. You continue preaching and teaching and being about, about me despite the difficulty it brings you. I mean, just in these, this opening section here, you go, wow, there's no hint of compromise in this church. No hint of compromise. It would have been easy. Just, uh, I just, I just need some groceries. Just, okay, there's the incense. Who cares? I don't mean it anyways. It would have been easy. Just, it's once a year. Just go outside, Caesar's Lord, whatever, and go about your life. You know, it would have been easy to compromise and to give into those things because, man, I just, I just need to live my life. And it's hard to be standing for Jesus. Some even went so far to say it doesn't really matter if we even participate in the sexual immorality and the worship that takes place here. We see that in verse six when he says, yet you do have this, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were a Gnostic sect. We've talked a lot about the Gnostics. They were these, these people that were trying to infiltrate the church in the first century and they were bringing false teaching and you know, they said, look, Jesus wasn't God or Jesus didn't have a real body. But they were, they were just this, this group that were like, look, grace covers all. So nothing done in the physical body matters. It doesn't matter if you go and commit sexual immorality and do this. It doesn't matter if you kill someone. It doesn't matter what you do in the body because grace covers everything. So just live how you want. And the result is many people be like, hey, I like that religion, right? I get to claim salvation and claim Jesus and, and believe that I'm saved and going to heaven and then go on to live however I want. And Jesus says, I hate what they do. And he commends Ephesus for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans as well. But then we get to verse four. But I have this against you. Right? This is where it goes, dun, dun, dun. That's the sound effect, okay? But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Look, Ephesus, despite all of the great things you're doing, despite how busy you are as a church, the hard work 
the commitment, the serving, the consistent, unwavering Christianity despite the culture, the dogged pursuit of purity, the defense of doctrine and truth, the determination, the patient faithfulness through the persecution, despite all of that, and I'm not saying any of that's bad, but despite all of that, I have this against you. I can imagine some of them possibly saying, how could you possibly have something against us, Lord? After all we do for you. You know, I gave up a Saturday for you, Lord. How could you dare have something against me? Lord, I got the expensive Bible. How could you have something? God, I serve. God, I, 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 I'm plugging into the tech team or children's ministry. God, I, I, I do. God, I passed out this many tracks this week. How can you have something against me? I'm so dedicated. And what he says is, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Some of you may be more familiar with how it reads in the New King James, New King James Bible, you have left your first love. Now what is the love you had at first, or the first love? What is that? Well, in the original Greek it reads this way, and I think there's a clue in it. In the original Greek, this is how the phrase reads there. You have left, you have forsaken, you have left behind your love, the first one. Your love, the first one. You abandon it. You know, some of us can remember when we were first saved, first came to that realization that the God of the universe loved us so much that he died for us and paid the price for all the sins we've ever committed, never will commit. And we could remember that fresh love for Jesus. It was bold, we were excited, it was a simple, fervent love. All we could think about was Jesus and him and wanting to know him more and to be close to him, and right? It's just, he's changed me, he's, he's forgiven me. Me, a wretch, I know what I've done. And yet he was willing to die on the cross for my sins, oh my gosh, I just, I just he's accepted me, I love him so much. I just want to hear from him, right? So we read. And we read like all the time and we're memorizing and we'll get little memorization cards and we'll do all these things and sign up for reading plans because we just can't get enough of hearing from Jesus. And we want to be at church and we want to be around his people and with our church family as much as we can and so we're always looking for opportunities to plug in and to be with people because those people we used to hang out with were suddenly like aware, I, I, I don't want to be a part of that anymore. I want to be around people who say things like blessed and who say things like, hey, can I pray for you? And we just can't get enough. And we serve and we plug in and we become an active part of the body of Christ simply because of him. Simply because of him. And everything else just seems to pale in comparison. Nothing satisf satisfies or brings joy just quite like Jesus. And so we're so in love and we're so vibrant in that. You know, and like that honeymoon phase, right? You take out the trash just for the opportunity to tell him you did. You take out the trash just to say, hey, I took out the trash and to see him smile, right? But notice he says you have abandoned the love you had at first. He doesn't say you lost it. He says you abandon it. That word abandon there implies like a, like a slow departure a turning away from, it's a process. It's a process just like, like 
in a relationship, there's a slow erosion that could take place. And it's not something that necessarily happens overnight, but it happens very slowly. And so the love you had at first is no longer preeminent in your life. It's no longer the, the, the primary reason that you serve and that you read and that you pray. You know, it, it's no longer you know, your love, the first one, is no longer the reason. You find that what you used to do primarily out of love, you now do primarily for other reasons. Now, sure, the love might still be present, right? Of course I love Jesus. Of course I love him. But it's no longer the first motivation. It's no longer the primary motivation. It's really no longer the reason that you're doing what you do. What happened in Ephesus is that the pure, simple devotion for Jesus had grown cold. Their many activities, their hard work, their defense of truth, their denial of immorality, all of it was no longer primarily done just because we love Jesus so much and just want to labor for him and proclaim him. But instead, they were doing it for other reasons. Maybe they worked hard out of guilt because they'd feel, feel bad if they didn't. Maybe they defended truth out of pride and a disdain for other believers, right? They're just so angry at those who don't believe in Jesus, they just wanna prove them wrong and, and, and make them feel dumb. And that's why they, they defended doctrine. Maybe they served to be noticed by others because they just, you know, I just need to feel appreciated. So I need others to appreciate me and that's why I serve. Maybe they patiently endured persecution because it made them feel superior to others. Look what I've put up with. Maybe it was because they recognized that they had a gift. And then they just felt that they had a duty and an obligation to use it. I mean, God gave me this gift, I have to use it. Whether I want to or not, I just have to. Maybe it was all about them feeling fulfilled by doing what they did. And what Jesus is saying to this church is, look, I don't want you to take out the trash because you don't want to get in trouble. I don't want you to take out the trash because you're tired of being pestered about it. I don't want you to take out the trash because you feel guilty about not doing it. I don't want you to take out the trash because it'll make you feel good about yourself if you do it. What he says is, I want you to take out the trash because you want to. I want you to do what I'm calling you to do because of your devotion to me. I want you to serve me because you just want to bless me and express your love for me. I want you to be who I'm calling you to be simply because of just your overwhelming love for, for me and what I've done in your life. I want you to do it because I am your love, the first one. Now perhaps you remember a time Again, where you realized for the first time that Jesus loved you, right? You realized you were saved and you realized you were his child. Maybe you remember that time, what it was like to, to hear and study and memorize the word all the time and it wasn't a chore or a duty. It wasn't like, Ugh, I've got to. Maybe you remember how every worship song you heard, whether it was on the radio or in church or wherever, it just hit your heart, right? And you were just like, oh, you were so swelled with love for Jesus. Every truth about Jesus was amazing. He just couldn't wait to get to church. 
Couldn't wait to be serving together with, with your fellow brothers and sisters, outreaching together, playing together, just united by a common joy at the reality of Jesus and who he is. But over a period of time, that fire has cooled off. And now it's the same old scripture. I've heard that before. Oh, that's the same old worship song. When are they going to do some new ones? Ah, same old people. Same routine, but the fervency is gone. The fervency is gone. The problem is not something on the outside. The problem is on the inside. The problem is our heart. The problem is that the flame on the altar of your heart is perhaps dying out. It's very possible to be about the king's business and forget about the king. Right, we have a story in Luke chapter 10 about Mary and Martha. Many of you are familiar with it. It's a classic example, I think, of what happens when our motivations are wrong, when Jesus isn't our primary motivation. You know, Jesus comes over for a meal at their house, and Martha, it says in Luke 10, is distracted by her many tasks. She's cooking, she's doing everything, gotta get the house ready. Jesus is there sitting in the living room. Yeah, I'll get to you, Jesus. I gotta get all this stuff done. Martha gets upset because Mary's not helping her, and she says, Jesus, will you tell her to help me? Martha, who is there just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just, just in adoration, just hearing from him and listening to him. And that's what happens when love of Jesus is no longer our primary motivation in service. We become bitter. We become critical, judgmental people. Jesus, why aren't they doing what I'm doing? Why aren't they helping me? And this is what was happening to Martha. And Jesus says, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Now that word necessary there, it means the one most important thing among the many things, right? See, what's important to understand in that story is that, that Jesus didn't condemn Martha for her busyness and her work. Jesus doesn't condemn the church of Ephesus for their busyness and their work and their effort. He, 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 in fact, he commends them for that. But when he says, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary, what he's pointing out is that she was doing what she was doing with the wrong heart with the wrong motivation, the wrong purpose. If Martha's work was purely out of devotion for Jesus, she wouldn't care what Mary was doing. Jesus, I'm cooking and I'm cleaning, I'm getting all this stuff ready because I just love you so much. But the fact that she got mad that Mary wasn't helping indicates that it was something about her. It was maybe she was trying to prove how devoted she was or there was an obligation in her heart or something. Thankfully, there's a way back. Look at verse five, Revelation two. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If you're taking notes here, he says three things. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, remember how far you have fallen. It's an interesting phrase in the Greek because the original language, it reads like, recall how you were at the beginning. That's the idea of this. Recall how you were at the beginning, how far you have fallen, right? The distance, the change between point A and point B. Remember where you started. Those moments when you were overwhelmed at the fact that he loved you so much. 
Those moments where you would read a word and it would bring a tear to your eye. It would make you feel the love that Jesus has for you through a a worship song or a lyric you would hear. He says, go back to that place of intimacy where you felt so close to Jesus. Remember, remember. Then he says, repent. That simply means to change your way by changing your thoughts and your attitude. That's the idea of repentance. It's a 180 degree turn, right? You're going this direction. He goes, repent. Turn and go this way. The idea there is us repenting and confessing the sin. God, I've, I've, I've been doing all this stuff not out of love for you, but for other reasons, myself, whatever. Right, in 1 John 1, 9, he wrote, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you feel like God is far away from you, guess who moved? It wasn't God. It's us who abandons the love we had at first. But you can return today. You could renew your devotion for him today knowing that he will forgive you. He's he's right there. We turn away from our love for him, we abandon it, and then we walk, and we're still doing all these wonderful things for Jesus. And then eventually we go, wow, I just feel so dull and so cold and so boring and so pointless and so lifeless, and man, where's Jesus? I don't hear you anymore. And he's like right here, tapping on your shoulder. Like just turn around. Repent. Just turn around. I'm right here, ready to forgive. Just turn back to me. Then he says, repeat. Do the works that you did at first. Do what you did then, how you did it then, for why you did it then. Right? Read the Bible, not as a duty as a, uh, or a chore, but, but with awe that God is speaking to you while you do so. Pray with eager anticipation that he's hearing you, not because like, oh, I've got to get my present today. God, I want, I want you to know my heart. I'm, I'm struggling. I have issues. I just want to praise you. But pray knowing that he hears you and is working on your behalf. Worship, not just repeating the lyrics, not just going through the motions, but thinking about what you're saying and thinking about those words and saying, God, I'm saying these to you because I love you so much. Serve the community and the unsaved, not because it's a duty or a chore or an obligation, but because in doing so, they they might meet your, your Lord and Savior. They might meet Jesus. They might get saved. Serving here, you know, I, I serve not, not, not because, well, there's a need, no, no but, but you mean I get the opportunity to, 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 to teach the gospel to the children? What a holy thing. I, I, I get to do video switching in the tech booth? How is that spiritual? If we weren't video switching today, we wouldn't be able to, to get the word out through video and the internet to those that are unable to be here with us physically. And so it's a part of our outreach process. And, and yeah, it's someone pushing buttons on a video switcher. <laughs> but it's important because it's a part of the work to get the word of God, that somebody would, would know Jesus through the word and be taught and encouraged and wow, what an opportunity. To join the worship team, not because, well, yeah, I got some skills and talents. Sure, you need some skills and talents, but it's not because of that, but it's, it's I, I get to, to be a part of leading God's people. Come with me into the throne room of God as we worship him, because that's, that's what worship leading is. 
I get to do that? Like, God, would you allow me to do that for you? I love you so much, I'll do anything. But not because if you don't do it, you feel guilty. And some people go, well, I just don't feel it. I don't feel it. You know, well, there's, there's counsel that is often given to, to couples, married couples that are like, oh, we've drifted apart. We've drifted in our love. <laughs> and part of the counsel is, look, go back and do the things you did at first. The feelings will follow. Make the habits. Get back into those habits again and say, okay, God, look, right now I'm not feeling the love, but I want to get back to that love. I want to rekindle that love. And so he says, go and do the works you did at first. Now, if not, if we don't work hard to rekindle our love and passion for Jesus, if we don't labor to, to, to change our priority in living back to for Jesus and him alone, but instead we continue to, to serve and to live for him out of duty or because it's a project to be fulfilled or it's some obligation or I feel guilty if I don't, if we don't change the priority to passion and devotion, just love for Jesus, what'll happen is our cold and, and, and critical and judgmental and upset like Martha and, and ultimately prideful witness will just drive people away from Jesus Christ. That's what he says there, our lampstand will be removed. The lampstand represents our ability to shine the light of Jesus, right? You remember the lampstand doesn't shine any light, it's the lamp that's hung upon it. And he goes, look, if you, if you don't shift gears here, don't stop what you're doing, but change why you're doing it. I'm gonna remove your lampstand. Because some of the, the most bitter Christians um, can be the most vocal for the gospel, but you hear them and you're just like, do you even love Jesus? You're so mad and upset and, and almost hateful in your defense of the gospel. And we don't want that to happen. We don't want our ability to shine the light of Christ to be affected. We don't want that light to be diminished to the point of ineffectiveness. None of us should. It might be today why you feel ineffective. You know, I just, I feel completely ineffective. I feel like I'm making no effect on the world. That, that, that I'm telling people about Jesus and it's just, it's, just, it, it's like bouncing off a brick wall. And, and, and maybe it's because Jesus is saying, look, I appreciate what you're doing but you're not doing it out of love for me, and so that love is not shining through what you're saying. Shift the priority. Then he closes with an exhortation to, to hear with intention, right? That means to listen and to understand and act, and then he gives this wonderful promise to the one who is victorious in the application of these things. Verse seven, he says, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches, right? Having ears to hear and listening, it doesn't just mean, oh, I heard it. It means, wait, no, I'm paying attention, I'm listening, I'm understanding. Then he says, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. In Ephesus, in the courtyard of the gigantic temple to Artemis or Diana was a huge tree. And because Artemis was considered the goddess of life and fertility and growth, it was common for people in Ephesus um, to approach that tree. Women who were hoping to get pregnant would come and touch the tree, hoping for a blessing from Diana. Others hoping for health or long life or provision would come and touch the tree 
and try and pull its leaves. And people thought, if I, if I partook of this tree, I would have life. Jesus is telling the Ephesian Christians, look, I'm the source of hope. You see, there in Ephesus, that tree in the courtyard of the temple to Artemis was a source of hope and fullness of life for the people there in Ephesus. And Jesus is saying, look, to the one who conquers, that means to be victorious, that means to be faithful in application, right? The one who says, look, God, please, I wanna rekindle my passion and my love for you, my devotion to you. I want that to be my primary motivation. I wanna do this. He says, look, you do that. You remember, you repeat. You go back to doing the first works. You keep doing it until that emotion follows, but you do it because, like, God, I wanna do what I do out of just love for you. He says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. If you're faithful in pursuing a rekindling of your first love for me, Jesus is saying, I, the true source of life, growth, and fullness, I'll provide all your needs. I will take care of you. And then he closes there with, which is in the paradise of God. I think that's just a call back to the Garden of Eden, the paradise where perfect, unbroken fellowship and relationship with God was, was in existence, undiluted, undistracted, just intact and perfect. Our relationship with God is not a self-maintaining thing as much as we might want it to be. We can't just go on autopilot and just run the program and do the routine. Oh, gotta show up to church. Oh, gotta read the Bible. I've gotta, we can't just go on autopilot because when we do, we slowly abandon the reason behind it all. We slowly abandon the purpose, and if you've gotten to a point in your, in your walk with Jesus where you're full of activity, you're full of busyness, you're full of, of motion, but you're missing the devotion, you're missing the love, ask him today. Say, God, I wanna rekindle that, that passion. I wanna come back to that place. I want you, my love, the first one, to be the primary motivator in my life and what I do and why I do it. Remember, repent, and commit to doing the things for the reason you did it first, to simply bless Jesus, to simply see him smile and declare how much you, you're, you, how much you love him for what he's done for you. Communion is a really fantastic opportunity to do that. You know, communion is the perfect opportunity to reflect back on the whole beginning of it all, the very beginning of our salvation, to reflect back on our love, the first one, and to rekindle if we need to. You know, because the reality is, as Christians, we can find ourselves in love with service, in love with theology, in love with study. We can be in, even in love with church. But if any of that supersedes our love for Jesus, we're in danger of growing cold. And communion is this wonderful place where we remember what Jesus did for us, personally, individually, and how that reason, what he did, is the reason for everything that follows after that. And so you should all have a communion cup here in the room. Hopefully, if you don't, raise your hand. One up here still, okay. We got one in the front here. If you could come forward, please. All right. These cups here, hopefully online, if you're watching, you got your communion emblems ready. Just keep your hand up if you don't have a cup, and the elders are gonna come forward, so. But these cups here, there's a little a plastic tab. There's a thick one and a thin one on the top. I just wanna give you guys instructions so you don't like spill it all over the place. But pull the real thin tab back and that's just gonna release the cracker that's on the top of this communion cup. 
You know, scripture tells us that when Jesus took the bread, it says he gave thanks, he broke the bread, and he told the disciples, this is my body, which is for you. And he goes, do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus was instituting something for all time where he wanted us to always remember his sacrifice. He wanted us to remember that this bread, it it represented his sinless body, right? That's why we use unleavened bread, and unleavened bread is what you're supposed to be using for this type of thing, you know, because in the Bible, leaven represented sin. It represented that which puffs us up, and, and there was no sin in Jesus. He was perfect, and it was that perfect body without sin ever having done anything wrong that was brutalized and, 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 and tortured and, and crucified for you and me. Right? If we were using bread that represented us, I mean, like the most gigantic piece of bread you've ever seen. But not Jesus. Not his body. If you still need a communion cup, just raise your hand up and we'll have the, okay, right here on the side. If you guys are out in the foyer, just go ahead and keep your hand up there and they're gonna come down and get you a cup. Awesome, thank you. Anybody else? All right, we're making the elders get a lot of exercise today. <laughs> there you go, all right. But he wanted us to remember that this bread represented his sinless body, his sinless body that was given for us. He wanted us to remember how that sinless body took the full wrath of God for all unrighteousness and all sin. It was the full judgment of God that was poured out on him instead of you and me because he loved us so much. And that judgment is a judgment that you and I deserve. He didn't deserve it, but you and I deserve it because we are sinners. We have sinned. We have fallen short of the glory of God. But because he loved you and me so much, he stepped into our place. He submitted his body to the suffering. Our punishment, he paid our price, and that perfectly reconciled our relationship with God. It was something that we could never do. He bled, he suffered, he died, that that we might be made whole. He went through everything that he went through for us. He was cut off, that we might be brought in. As John said, what great love the Father has given to us that we would be called children of God. It's because his body was laid on the altar. Let's pray. Father, God, we remember your body given for us. Lord, that you voluntarily went to a place to take the punishment we deserve upon yourself every lie we've ever told, every impure thought we've ever done, every wicked deed we've ever engaged in, Lord. You took the punishment for that. And Lord, that is just beyond our comprehension. But you tell us that you did it because you love us. You did it because you love us so much. And God, we want to remember that, that we would then live reflecting that truth, God, that we would live for you and and, and serve you, God, not out of guilt or obligation or duty, but God, we would realize that we have been 
set free and adopted into your family, God, and that we would simply respond in gratitude and love to you in all things. Because, Lord, you took a punishment that we deserve. We say thank you, God, for that. Let's partake together. So if you have one of the cups here in the room, you just carefully pull back the thicker tab. You know, when Jesus took the cup at that last supper, he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. You know, in the old way of doing things, they would set the animal sacrifice, it would get burnt up. They would pull the blood out of it and it would get sprinkled all over the altar and all of this was to cover sin. But he said, this is the new covenant. Like my blood is gonna be sealing the new covenant that I'm gonna pay the price and shed my blood for your sins once and for all forever. It's done. What did Jesus say on the cross? It is finished. That we are set free. That our sins have been washed away, not covered, washed away. And that's instantly, that's a tough one. That's a tough one for me, right? Because I'm like, I, 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 I still know what I did. But when God looks at us through the blood of Jesus Christ, he goes, I see spotless purity and perfection. We didn't deserve that. I know I don't deserve that. But again, because he loved us so much. He did that for us. And he wants us to remember that clean slate, that unblemished record, that restored fellowship that his shed blood purchased for us. A people who again didn't deserve it and couldn't earn it. But it was his blood that once and for all satisfied the justice of almighty God and it's through our faith in his perfect atoning work we have eaten truly of the tree of life. We have come to a place of gaining true life and eternal life now and forever. Not the false hope of false religion, not the false promises of false gods, not the empty, hollow, dull, deadness of idolatry and immorality, but instead life, true life, granted freely to us us, through faith in his shed blood. And how do we express our gratitude to him for that? He just says, live for me. Love me, love others. But he wants us to do it out of our love for him. He doesn't condemn us for our activities when they have the wrong motivation. He says, good job, I'm glad you're working for me. But I want you to come back to that place of your first love. To remember what I did for you. And that's why you do what you do. Father, we thank you, God, so much. Lord, we know it's your shed blood that wiped us clean of all sin. Lord, as we would stand before you now and forevermore, you would see us as spotless and perfect, without sin, without wrongdoing, without error. And God, that's a lot. And Lord, it'll take a lifetime for us here on this earth to understand the depth of the love that would do that for us, God. But Lord, we want to pursue that. 
Lord, for those of us that may have found ourselves growing cold and going through the motions, Lord, I pray, God, today as you speak into our hearts, Lord, you would rekindle a fire and a passion and a devotion for you. That, God, yes, we would be diligent and unwavering in our witness and working hard and serving and in, in, in preaching and in defending doctrine and all of those things, God. But we wouldn't be doing it for ourselves. We wouldn't be doing it for reasons that are anything but out of love and gratitude for who you are. And so, God, as we remember your broken body and we remember your shed blood on the cross, we say thank you for dying for us. And God, we also say thank you for rising again and granting us that new life. We love you so much. Help us, Lord, to love you better. Help us, Lord, to love you only. Let's partake together. Well, I pray that God will bless your life. I pray that God has spoken to your heart as he has spoken to mine, as he speaks every time we get into his word and study it together. And that we would be people who love him first and foremost. That we be people who live for him, for him and nothing else. That we pray and seek and read and knock and all of those things because we just wanna be close to Jesus. And if you're struggling with that, God knows you're struggling. God hears your cries. And as you remember, as you repent, as you go back to those first works, I trust and believe that God's word, as it promises, you will come back to him he is not far from you. He's standing right there. And so keep praying and keep doing and keep reflecting on the one you're doing it for and why you're doing what you do as a Christian because he loves you so much. His love for you is so overwhelming, so beyond fathoming. I think we need to bask in that a little more, stay in that a little more, rest in that a little more that we would shine that love to the world that desperately needs him, amen? All right, God bless you guys, let's worship.